This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Social anxiety or social awkwardness, what's normal? Do you or your child have social anxiety or are we now just pathologizing shyness too? Learn the difference between real signs of social anxiety or just a more introverted temperament. What skills do we need to teach our kids to help them connect with others? As we leave our quarantined isolation, some kids might be feeling out of practice being with other kids and teens again. Hear Lynn tell us how to support them. Welcome to Fluster Clucks, where we talk worry and other big feelings with Lynn Lyons. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin. And hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I will help you find your way. So Lynn, there's so much optimism about what's potentially we come back to a normal. And one of the things that a listener had written in to us about was her daughter's social awkwardness and her social anxiety and coming back into social situations. And when I think about the pandemic and I think of the listener questions that we received, some kids might have been in in a very similar social experience where it wasn't that different for the past year. And then other kids really were very isolated. There's such a range of what kids went through. But I think it's fair to say we're all socially rusty. Yeah, I'm totally socially rusty. Yeah, I think I have too. So what do you think we could do to help the socially rusty, particularly those that might have been more socially awkward or socially anxious even before the pandemic, And maybe you could break it down and explain the difference. I love that phrase, socially rusty. And I think that when you're moving back into something, if it's something that you're naturally pretty good at, and we know that in terms of temperament, that there are some kids that are just more extroverted. There are some kids that are just more socially adept, just as we know that with the case with adults. And I think the socially rusty issue comes up with kids that maybe this was not their strength going into the pandemic. They've also kind of enjoyed not having to work that muscle because it doesn't feel so good to them or it doesn't feel so natural to them. And so now moving back into the world, back into class, back into team sports, back into whatever social environment they're in feels a little challenging. As with all of the skills that we want to teach kids, it's important to just, first of all, talk about it in a very direct way. And interestingly, so here we are recording this, New Hampshire schools are going back full-time on Monday. That's mandated, all schools back full-time. So there's a lot of kids that are entering back into school in this full-time way. It really is okay to say to kids, you know what, you might be a little socially rusty. You know how it is when you take out your bike out of the garage for the first time in the spring? And even though we know you know how to ride a bike, it just feels a little weird to get back on that bike after having not been on it for several months. And that's how this is going to feel too. So it's okay if it takes a little while for you to get used to this again. And it's okay if it feels a little big at the beginning. And like riding your bike, we got to get your rhythm back. We got to get your momentum back. And I think it won't be long before you find your groove again. 
Now, if you have kids that really struggle with social connection in general before the pandemic, then they're going to need a little more coaching and a little bit more support. And it is a time to say to them, these are really important skills for you to develop. And we were working on this before the pandemic. So it means now that we're going to pick up and start working on them again. When we're talking about being shy, and I've seen many things over the last few years of people saying, oh gosh, now we've pathologized being shy. And now we have to give that a label too. So now you're not just shy, you have social anxiety disorder. There is a difference. When you are shy, we can use a lot of words to describe that. You're more introverted, you're more quiet. We refer to that technically as having a behaviorally inhibited temperament which just means that you're a hanger backer a little bit. You don't dive right into the social situation. Kids that have that temperament, there's a few things that we need to remember. One is that it's fine if they have that temperament. It just means that they're going to move more slowly into things. And it also means that they're going to choose activities. They're going to choose friends. They're going to gravitate toward things that are more in keeping with their temperament. And I think sometimes what happens is that when kids have that shyer, more quiet, more introverted temperament, parents feel like you need to shove them into things to sort of get them out of that, right? So we're going to make them play on the soccer team or we're going to make them be involved in this. And it really is okay as long as they're connecting socially. A lot of times these kids connect with other kids that have a similar temperament. So they get involved in things where it is a little quieter or it is a little slower. But also sometimes these kids find that they can be in a group of kids that are really extroverted and they can kind of be pulled along and they can be included. They just don't have to carry the torch of the social engagement. So either one of those is fine. As you're describing this, I hear this as a parent thinking kind of about elementary age kids versus mm -hmm. teenagers. Yep elementary age kids, I think it's important, like you said, to help them normalize that it's okay that you don't want to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. That's a certain personality type. Yeah. But having that same conversation with a teenager, it's making sure that shy, introverted teenagers aren't labeling themselves as a pathology because teenagers are so dramatic in their self-description. Correct. And so that's similar to that theme of the panic attack episode oh my gosh, I'm having a panic attack. Well, actually you're not. And so it's that same thing with social anxiety versus just being shy and right. making sure that you're encouraging accurate language at home. What does that sound like? Let me differentiate a little bit too between, because social anxiety is real, just like panic attacks are real. And being shy is not necessarily having an anxiety disorder. Being introverted is not necessarily having an anxiety disorder. I know a lot of people that are shy that are, you know, I wouldn't pathologize it. With teenagers, here's where I sort of differentiate with that. There is a difference between being shy and being introverted and not wanting to do certain things that don't really matter all that much. I'll just give you an example. One of my kids loved the idea of going to overnight camp. The other kid didn't want anything to do with it. And whether or not you go to overnight camp, that's not a requirement in life. But if you are socially anxious, if you have an anxiety disorder, 
the issue becomes that you can't do the things that you actually need to do in order to, one, be socially connected, because we know how important that is, so you feel isolated and lonely, and to, two, be able to participate in things that you want to participate in, but you can't get yourself to do. So that becomes a real conflict and oftentimes is what leads teenagers who struggle with this to start feeling really depressed. And then the third thing is, is that you can't do the things that you need to do that are just basic skills for you to get the help you need, to advocate for yourself, to go talk to a teacher, to go to a doctor, if you're having an appendicitis. So we want to look at that differentiation. If you are shy and there are things you don't want to do or that are not your thing and they're really not going to make a difference, like parents, if your kid doesn't play a team sport, that's not the end of the world. But if your child, especially as they move into those tween and teen years, if they can't speak to people, if they can't go into a store, if they can't talk to a teacher, if they can't email a teacher, if they can't express even on just a basic level what's going on inside of them, that's when we start talking about social anxiety disorder because it's getting in the way of what we would consider both normal, and I'm making finger quotes, normal functioning, but also really important things that we do to help ourselves, to protect ourselves, to communicate with people in a way that's really basic and necessary for our own well-being. When you break things up into skills, that's sort of your approach. And I have really loved thinking that way. I read listener questions now. And before you answer them, I try and determine what do I think is the skill that you're going to hone in on that needs development in that mm -hmm. situation. And what's coming back to this is that meta-level conversation that I have wanted to really do an episode on because I think one of the most critical skills to learn for our mental health is how do we seek connection? Yep, absolutely. I think that's the most important skill if you're capable of seeking connection mm -hmm. and feeling connection. Mm -hmm. That's the quality of life maker. Yeah, you're exactly right. So let me talk about this in terms of the skill. This mom asked this question about her socially awkward teenager and how does she help her develop those skills? Or if we put it into the category of somebody who I'm treating for social anxiety, what's the skill that we want to develop? So there are basic skills, of course, that we should start early on of how do you make eye contact? How do you initiate a conversation? All that stuff, basic social skills. And we want to put kids in situations that are not overwhelming, right? We want to put kids in situations that they can have a little bit of comfort and confidence when they're little. But the skill we really want to focus on as kids get older is the ability to step into social situations. Now, when I say social situations, I'm not talking about like a birthday party. I'm talking about situations in which you have to interact with people in some way. But how do you step into a social situation and tolerate two things? Tolerate the fact that human beings judge. Tolerate the fact that when you are interacting with another people or with a group of people, they are going to have opinions about you because that's what socially anxious people really worry about. They worry about judgment. And to also tolerate that there are many social interactions, particularly at the beginning, that the conversation or the interaction feels awkward or uncomfortable. 
And those are often, of course, if you're shy or you're socially anxious or you're introverted, those are the ones you're more likely to avoid. And oftentimes those are the ones that are really important that you learn how to have. That's where you get your needs met. And that's also where social connection comes from. The ability to be honest when you need to, or the ability to tolerate not knowing exactly how the conversation is going to go. You know, if you've been listening to me for a while, you will catch on to the fact that I'm not going to say we have to make sure that everything goes smoothly for our socially awkward teenagers, which is nice if that does happen, but that's not the point. How do we tolerate knowing that sometimes social interactions feel uncomfortable and feel awkward? And when we teach that, the nice conversations, the easy conversations, well, that's the downhill slide. That's the icing on the cake. It's how do we step in and tolerate when things feel uncomfortable? Because remember, when you're anxious, that's what you're trying to avoid. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook, you can add events directly using the touch screen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me 
And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. When you think of the clients that you've worked with over the last three decades, Mm -hmm. and you think of the teenagers and the children, and you think of the parents, Mm -hmm. what is the role of the family's own social dynamics, and then what the children and teenagers are capable of replicating in the world beyond their family? Do you always see a connection Or could it be very independent that a family can be really connected and have good relationships and good communication and then there's a barrier to the outside world? Or if there's a real struggle connecting to the outside world, do you persistently see a struggle of connection with the family? I have seen plenty of families where the whole family is kind of introverted and shy, right? That that's just their temperament. They come to see me not because of problems they're having within the family, but because of the interactions that they're having outside of the family. So they're worried about their child not being able to make friends, or they're worried about their child not being able to talk to their teachers. Or, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, they went off to college and they crashed and burned because they weren't able to socially connect or advocate for themselves. There are actually a lot of families where they're similarly temperamented, And within the family, they're very connected because they tend to be comfortable with each other and they're kind and they're sweet and loving. You know, it's like a family of really sweet but shy dogs that go out into the world with the German shepherds and the golden retrievers that overwhelm them. So sometimes the dynamic within the family is very lovely and very kind and very supportive. But again, remember, it's what parents model. And if a parent has a really difficult time stepping out into the world and really enjoys kind of the comfort of the nuclear family, they're not showing their kids how to do that because for them, it's hard to do it too. Every once in a while, there's a family where there's somebody who's really extroverted and really outgoing, and they're married to somebody who's really shy. And you've got a combination of this really extroverted person, this really shy person. And then there's conflict within the parenting about how to help a child get over that hump. Because the extroverted person 
is like, look, you just got to go out and do it. And the introverted person can so empathize. When I talk with anxious families, the anxious parent is sometimes even overly empathic to the anxious child because they can so relate. So we've got to work. I, I have a family like that, actually. Two of the children are really shy and introverted, and so is one of the parents. The other parent you know, wants to be the star of the show, and the extroverted parent cannot relate to the shy children. And so we've had to work on that. How do we teach the skills without you coming in like a bull in a china shop and just demanding that they do things the way you do them? That's interesting where in that scenario, that extroverted parent learning the skills and learning modifications of their own way to connect more deeply with their kids Mm -hmm. would probably enhance their own relationships with the rest of the world too. I think if somebody is really naturally socially adept, they don't even know how to teach their kids how to do it because they didn't even really have to consciously think about it. You know, if something sort of comes naturally to you or if something is easy for you, it's hard for you to teach it to somebody who doesn't get it at all. Like my husband is like a homing pigeon with his sense of direction and I am terrible. And he says things to me like, just use the sun as a compass. I'm like, I do not even know what that means, right? And, and he, he just can't understand why I don't get it. I think about how hard it is for him to teach me this because I don't, know, I don't even know what it feels like inside his head to be able to know where he is in the world. And he has no idea what it feels like to me. I mean, I get confused between my lefts and my rights. Mm-hmm. I need somebody who was who bad at navigation, who learned how to do it, who can teach me. Right. So sometimes the more introverted parent, and I know I, I actually know a lot of families where the child might be really shy and the parent will say, I was just like you as, an, as a teenager. I was just like you. And I really had to work at it. And now look where I am now. And let me explain to you what I did. And that can be a wonderful sense of connection between a parent and a child. I love this conversation because it's really interesting to reflect that it is less about temperament and it's more about what we're modeling because introverted people are capable of making wonderful relationships. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing you have to remember, which is why I don't want to pathologize this, is that introverted people, quieter people, people who sort of hang back a little, where they say, I don't want to be in a big crowd or I don't want to go to a big, huge party with a lot of people, but I so value the close and wonderful friendships I have with a handful of people. They're so expressive and they're able to connect on such a wonderful level. There are some people who want to have a hundred friends and who don't care to have a deep conversation about anything. And that's fine too. It's just being able to help your kids recognize that there are certain skills you have to have to connect, like I said, but also there are just certain things you need to be able to do in the world so that you can go out and function. If you can't go into a store to return an item that doesn't fit, if you can't go into a restaurant and order what you want or send back something that they brought that was not what you ordered, if you can't assert yourself, if you can't go talk to a teacher because you're stumped about an assignment, those are then the skills we want to make sure that a more introverted person has. You're exactly right, Robin. It just always comes back to how do we make sure that we are giving our kids the opportunity and the skill and the support to connect 
on all sorts of different levels, sometimes superficially, but also in ways that really help them feel loved and supported and a part of things. It's the isolation that we want to pay attention to. Right. It's the isolation, but also always framing that the connection is the goal. Connection is the goal. I mean, obviously, we're both extroverted. It's not that we don't love our own alone time, but we obviously have no problem talking to other people. Right. It's funny because I was going to tell a personal story about my dating history and remember the the outcome is that I married your brother, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I remember when I thought of like, I, I lived in New York City, I was a single gal dating, looking for love, you know? Yeah. And I remember having a, a, I don't know, it was like just like in my late 20s, I had this realization that the sh- not the shy guys, because my husband isn't shy, but he is more introverted. He would never talk to somebody sitting next to him on an airplane. Yeah. And I could tell you life stories of everyone I've flown with. <laughs> I remember learning a skill, a social skill. If I'm with someone who's introverted, if I don't talk, they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to right. be almost like 27 or 28 to learn that. Yeah. And it was a really great time that I knew that lesson would be important because that's, in fact, when I remember, you know, my first few dates with your brother, I made sure that I did not speak when I didn't want to, to see Mm -hmm. what he would say. He was certainly not shy at all. I learned all these wonderful things about him. But that was, again, a skill I had to, I had to learn that balance. And when my kids are older, I will absolutely be sharing that example. You know, like we're always needing to tweak our own ability to connect with different types of people. Isn't that just such an amazing point that you bring up? Because here we are talking about how it's really important to teach social skills and to really coach our shy and introverted kids. And it's making me think right now, like it's also really important to teach the chatterboxes of which I'm one we need to learn skills too. So maybe we don't need to learn how to step in and advocate for ourselves, but we need to learn how to shut up. We need to learn how to listen. We need to make room for the people that aren't as talkative and extroverted as us. In our marriage, so we we have a whole history of conversation about this, right? Yeah. We call it the conversation pie. And so are you taking 50% of the conversation pie or are you taking... 80% of the conversation pie. So that's actually a skill to, for those more chatty people, they need a skill to shut up, man. Yeah. Just learn to listen, learn to ask questions and make a conversation mutual. And if you're with someone who has a different temperament, look and see what temperament they have mm-hmm. and learn to work with it. Mm-hmm. It's skills that everyone needs to learn of how to create connection with mm-hmm. as many different types of people as possible. That's right. And to recognize too that conversations and connections, I think sometimes people have this idea that if you do it right, it'll go smoothly. And this is sort of what I was saying before, the acceptance that there's all sorts of awkward moments in conversations, even with people that are very skilled conversationalists, right? The people who talk too much, what we get, we don't get in trouble at not knowing what to say. We get into trouble because we put our foot in our mouth or we say too much or we dominate the conversation. So really being able to talk to kids of all types of temperament and to model all types of how do we know the difference between 
when we should step in and when we should be quiet and when we should listen and when we should speak. And then for our more socially rusty kids, really normalizing that it's okay to bumble through. It's okay to have some silence. It's okay to not know exactly what to say. The other thing too, I was thinking about doing this episode as a talky person, as my family always points out that I talk a lot, is that there are other ways that people can express themselves. And we put so much emphasis on verbal communication and verbal expression that we forget that there are people who are more introverted or people that are quieter and they may express themselves through music. They may express themselves through their writing. I've told parents, if your child is having a hard time talking to you, write them a letter and give it to them and let them read the letter and let them take in the information and then have them write you a response. I mean, now it might be like text them. I I would rather have it be a a written letter because they're is something about writing things down with the brain that's pretty interesting. But you may have children draw you a picture. But I think that we just have to remember that not everybody communicates verbally, even though we tend to put that up as the sometimes the only way that you can express yourself or the premier way of expressing yourself. Let your kids express themselves in other ways and give them room to do that. I had a little girl who choreographed a dance for me to show me how she was dealing with her worry. She filmed a dance for me and sent it to me. I mean, how lovely is that? Have you ever wished you could work with Lynn to talk about your family? Here's your chance. We're excited to announce the second Fluster Clucks Parenting Retreat at Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires. This two-night retreat will feature small group workshops with me and Lynn, a private consultation with Lynn, and all of the amenities of Canyon Ranch, a luxury wellness destination. It's not just a spa. Join us October 22nd through 24th. Registration opens Monday, April 26th, and there's a link in the show notes and on flusterclucks.com. Connect with us as we talk about raising courageous and independent children and managing our family's anxieties. So I like what you're saying about social anxiety is to the degree that you avoid necessary social circumstances, Mm -hmm. which is different than having a social temperament that you just prefer not doing certain things. Mm -hmm. It's just not who you are. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about social awkwardness, though, because I feel like how could, I mean, I think we're all works in progress the rest of our lives. We can always keep getting better. But as if we think about our kids or our teenagers who the awkwardness is stemming from a lack of specific skills. Right. So what are the skills that you see most commonly that parents should really be thinking about? Has has my child or teenager learned this skill? What do you think those are? Well, I think one of them is being able to step in and start a conversation and to keep a conversation going. And that may sound like a really basic skill, but particularly when we're talking about people that are socially awkward, or we're talking about, you know, if it, if it ventures into the social anxiety place, that's one of the things that they have a really hard time doing. And so how do you help somebody develop that? Well, one of the very easy tips is you learn how to ask questions of the other person. So when somebody feels socially awkward, they don't know how to enter in. 
So helping them enter into a conversation or enter into a social situation is really helpful. The other thing about being socially awkward is that you're not good at reading the room. So in a place where one conversation should happen or in a place where it's supposed to be serious, you don't know how to read the room. So you don't know that maybe this isn't a place where you need to be silly and joking, or this isn't a place where you need to talk. It's a need a place where you need to be quiet or that you started off teasing this person, but now the teasing has gone too far. When you're socially awkward, it can be that you're hanging back and you're not saying anything and you're looking at your shoes, but it can also be that you're engaging in behaviors that don't fit with the situation. So that's something that you can really coach and talk about. But I would say that in terms of being socially awkward, and I think that when most people are talking about social awkward, they're talking about that awkward silence, because that's what people fear the most, is how to keep a conversation going. And really the key to that is to teach the person who is socially awkward how to ask questions. It's just like love on the spectrum, which we've talked about for the community on the spectrum, breaking down these social skills in a way that is tangible and in a way that is capable of being learned and that it isn't all intuitive for everyone. When we can teach kids that and we can talk about it and being able to say in a way that doesn't sound harsh or judging or that kind of stuff to say, this is a skill that you have to learn. So you know, we're going into this situation and we're going to meet these people. So sometimes it's hard in these kinds of situations. You don't know these people. Let's come up with four questions that you could ask. And you teach them how to keep a conversation going by asking questions. And I will tell you, I've done social anxiety groups with young adults. A, that's the biggest fear that they have is how do you keep a conversation going? But we literally practiced it in my office. We role played. We talked about situations where you're meeting somebody and how do you keep a conversation going? And I think that helps kids and teenagers feel a little more confident as they go in because they know that they're going to be able to keep the conversation going. In the same boat, you can also say, look, it's okay if there are some awkward silences. That's okay. That happens. You know, it feels awkward, of course. That's why we call it awkward silences. But teaching them how to ask questions and teaching them how to read the room. If you've got a kid that seems socially oblivious, so they're going in and you watch everybody giving each other sideways glances like, oh gosh, he doesn't really know how to behave or he doesn't know really how to manage this. That's when you need to just really do some coaching. Look around the room and see what the other people are doing. And let's rate the energy level in this room, right? Are we going into a situation in which the energy is a two or are we going into a situation in which the energy is a 10? How do you talk to people or connect with people in a two? And how do you connect with them in a 10 so that there's not a misfit? There's not a mismatch. You know, all the things that hopefully parents teach their kids of how do you look somebody in the eye? How do you introduce yourself? How do you shake hands? How do you offer information about yourself? What do you share? What do you not share? And what do you normalize? Yeah. Oh, I totally put my foot in my mouth all the time still. Everyone does it. Or sometimes I just don't know what to say. Everyone Mm -hmm. gets stuck sometimes. Mm -hmm. And to just normalize the interactions that don't go so well. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
Whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. That reminds me, I, I've probably told you this story before, Robin, but I was flying to Canada because I had to do a gig in Canada. And at the day before we were leaving... I can't believe you're bringing this up because I don't know if we're talking about the same thing, but as you were talking earlier, I was like, what's the one time you didn't read the room? You're, <laughs> you're sushi awkward. Is this what oh, you're about to say? No, that's it. <laughs> oh my God. Well, okay. So that is another story too. That's not what I was about to say, but I could tell that story too. Both of these situations happened in Canada. Yeah, I was in, I had to, I had to be in, where was I? I was in Vancouver, right? Yes. And like the best sushi in the world. And my husband always says, wherever you are, like find the cuisine, ask the locals. All the locals were like, oh my gosh, it's this little basement place. Go in. Two people from Japan. They make incredible sushi. You have to go. And I love sushi. And I walked in. I still, to this day, like it is just a moment that is, I can't explain it. I got totally intimidated I couldn't really understand the menu. And instead of asking the woman what I should get, I ordered a California roll. Yeah. And I don't even like California rolls. And she even said, are you sure that's what you want? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's one of my worst social, like what was going on? I don't know. The other story I was going to tell, which this is a stabber story, but I was going to Canada. I don't even remember where I was going. Edmonton. And the day before I left, one of our little kitties had got hit by a car and the other one was missing. And I had to leave not knowing where the other kitty was. And my son was devastated. He was putting up signs everywhere. And I cried all the way from Concord, New Hampshire to Edmonton, Alberta. I mean, I was a disaster. I finally get to this like Best Western Hotel and I walk up to the counter and I must have looked terrible. 
And the nice man behind the counter, he's a young man. And I walked up to the counter and he said, oh, hello. And he said, it must have been a long trip for you. You look very tired. Okay. I burst into tears. So I'm standing in front of this poor guy who's probably 24 years old and I'm sobbing. We stood there for this moment and he just looked at me and he said, now I do not know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) It was just the most... It was the most awful, awkward moment for the two of us because (laughs) I could put myself in his shoes, right? He had no idea what to do. I was a mess. I had been crying for 12 hours. So I said, I know, I'm sorry. And then what do I say? I can say like, well, my cat died. It was just terrible. He was so kind. You should have said that, right? You should have said, my cat died and I'm I'm sad. (laughs) That, I can imagine that getting even more awkward. Really? Because we're going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, it was, just, it was just awful. Everything about it was awful. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That's, those are the bookends of my social disasters of ordering a California roll and standing sobbing in front of a hotel clerk in Edmonton. Maybe two times in your life you didn't read the room. Yeah, I'm sure there have been others. Those are the most notable. Those are certainly the most notable. The sushi thing still bugs me. God, that still pisses me off. Yeah, you missed out on probably one of the best meals you could have had. Well, and just so you know, Robin, it's not like that has been lost on me in the amount of times I've ruminated about this. Um, That was probably like 10 years ago now. Yeah. Why did I just not say, please, what do you recommend? It's a good story to just say that even people that consider themselves very socially adept every once in a while just completely fall flat on their face. But I think as parents, we talk about these things that they become like the family lore, Mm -hmm. but they're just great dinner table conversations that are instructive. We're laughing about these funny moments, but there's always this great lesson. And our kids are learning even when we're not consciously teaching them. That's right. Anyone who knows you could say you have one of the best self-deprecating senses of humor. And that's just, no, it's just a wonderful quality that you have. But that ability to just say, here's who I am. And you've got, you know, your house of three amazing men who just really enjoy hearing (laughs) all these things. It sets it up well. And, And to have a culture where you can talk about embarrassing things. I remember growing up as a kid when my mom would tell me her most embarrassing moments on dates. So when I was like 12 or 13, I thought that was the most fascinating pieces of information, but it normalized that those things happen. Yeah. And that's what it really is about, isn't it? Is being able to normalize and say that life is bumpy and we're always learning and we're always going to have moments of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I did that, right? We all have that. Everybody who's listening now can go back into their little, their history and say, oh, that was the most awkward moment, or oh my gosh, that was so embarrassing, or oh, I can't believe I said that. And to pivot and even say like, oh, this is going to be a great story later. Right. So that as we're having these moments, we can even get ourselves off the bench before Mm -hmm. we have sit on it too long and just like, this is going to be a funny story in a year, and I'll be able to laugh about it. Yeah. It doesn't feel funny now, but I will be able to laugh about it. Yeah. That's what Jerry Seinfeld says when he's talking to other comedians, that things are happening. And he's always thinking in his head, okay, this is going to be a good joke. This is going to be a good joke. So it's really about being able to sort of step into all of our messiness and find the humor, of course, but also just recognize that it's always learning and telling stories and sharing our humanness and helping us. It's a way to connect for sure. Yeah. 
So it sounds like we should have some family conversations of what does it mean to be socially rusty? And do you feel rusty in any things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And use that analogy. We're taking the bike out of the garage at the beginning of spring. You know, you're getting back in the pool and you haven't been swimming or whatever it is that you do. And it's okay to feel rusty. And let's just talk about that. Let's put it right out there on the table and let's talk about it. Mm Oh, God. And then the part two of that sushi thing, remember? So then I was determined that I was going to go and not have that happen again. And so I went to that small Japanese fishing town and I got there and all the sushi restaurants were closed. And I was starving because I was on Eastern time and I was back in Vancouver. I don't think I had a phone and I couldn't find a car. I got a car from the hotel to this fishing town eight miles away. And I walked home eight miles starving having not found a place to get sushi. Oh my God. That was that was part two of it. Yeah, that was part two of it. I think the really simple skill every teenager in America would tell you is to carry a phone. I know, I know. <laughs> I, walked into, I walked into a store. You know, I'm directionally impaired too, so I've got to walk back eight miles to the hotel. And I walk in and I say like, hey, I'm trying to find my way back to such and such a hotel. And the young guy goes like, I don't think you're going to make it. I was like, I am going to make it. I am going to make it. I can walk forever. I'm going to make it. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Flusterclux. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.